1: Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can, the best way possible, while dodging some bullets doing so.
0: Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened?
1: I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title. You get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale.
0: You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore.
1: My name is Tal Shmueli and I will be your host. Lou, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming.
0: You're welcome. Excited to be here.
1: For those of us who have never heard of you before, can you please tell us who you are, what you do, and why do you do it?
0: So my name is Lu Lee. I am an entrepreneur. I started a company called Blooming Founders. It's the third company I've started. And I've been doing that for almost five years now, based in London. And what we do is we support female entrepreneurs on their startup journey through um, events, a co-working space, and all sorts of other things that we do.
1: And For the biggest question, why?
0: Why is uh, a long story short? (laughs) I am obviously a female entrepreneur myself. I left my corporate career about seven years ago and didn't really, the only thing I knew was that I didn't want to work in the corporate anymore. And the sort of conclusion was that I had to work for myself, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I came to London about six years ago and did not know anyone and basically put myself out there, attended a lot of events, tried to kind of you know, get my foot into the door of the city, if you will. And in that process, I realized how male dominated the startup ecosystem is because I didn't have any friends. And I think after like a couple months, I still didn't have any female friends. Most of the, you know, friends I had were, were, were men and, and, you know, and that was cool. They were really, really lovely guys, but I just really saw a gap in the market um, that served female entrepreneurs. Um, and I thought I could, you know, do something. So.
1: You've mentioned that before you started Blooming Founders, you had a corporate career. Can you tell us a little bit about your corporate journey?
0: yeah so i started um working for mckinsey after graduation from business school in munich um and i left it i mean literally spent two days there not like literally two days (laughs) but i did two projects at mckinsey before i moved on because it was in october 2008 when i started Mm -hmm. and that was just the beginning of the recession at the time it was a very uncertain environment all the projects were either internally focused or around cost cutting and again it just like wasn't my vibe it's just like i just didn't feel it basically i'm more of a growth oriented person that's kind of like what excites me and i just kind of didn't really have like a great outlook basically you know staying um at mckinsey even though it was mckinsey and company the company that every business school student was dying to to work for right but if it doesn't fit you it doesn't fit you what can you do right um and how getting into it yeah it was hard it was hard i spent five years of my life trying to strategize to get in
1: i mean and working five years to get into a company getting into it and then realizing it's not for you, yeah, doesn't sound like a pleasant experience.
0: No, but I think at that time, you know, I guess I had the luxury of having ha, um, have a second job offer. So I did in my studies an internship at Procter Gamble, P&G, and um, got a, an open job offer afterwards, which was probably you know, guess lucky in that sense. Um, they were just kind of like, "Yep, yeah, we like you. Uh, we understand that you still have a year of school to do, but let us know when you're ready and you can join." And, and that's also why I left McKinsey fairly early, because I didn't want that offer to expire in a sense, right? Because they didn't know how long it will take me to do like, you know, another year of school plus a dissertation. So I didn't want to drag it on forever, right? Because if I went to go back to PNG and be like after three years, be like, oh, I'm finally done. They were like, um, hold on a second. You know, that was like three years ago. So um, I, I thought that I couldn't let it roll for too long, basically. So I had to make a decision at the, at the time to either leave um, and join PNG or I guess stay. And I guess because I had an easy way out, because I had the offer, I just basically called up p and said, hey guys, I'm ready.
1: P&G, one of the biggest consumer goods companies in the world, famed for what they've done, practically inventing brand strategy and brand, brand management. Building, yeah. What was it like working there? What are the ups and downs?
0: So it was great the first two years. I think I think probably the, the first two years at Procter & were like the best years I have in my professional, like corporate career, because they gave you a lot of freedom. I was, you know, um, in, on the team of Pantan, so it was beauty care, it was a brand I could relate to, it was a brand I even used, like on a daily basis. And um, I was in charge of a $3.5 million um, dollar budget, basically, uh, fresh out of school, which I, I then had to develop the um, initiatives. Initiatives at PNG are basically product launches. And, you know, I got to work with six to seven, eight, um, I forgot the exact number, but external agencies. I had a team of like about 10 internal people that I was leading. So the exciting part was really sort of the, um, you know, responsibility and, and um, scope of work that you, that you were able to do fresh out of school, pretty much. And that I really enjoyed and right. uh, all the learning as well, the, the colleagues. Um, so we were based in Geneva, in Switzerland, and there was literally no one from Switzerland, basically. Uh, they were all coming up from everywhere in Europe and, you know, I guess the world. And it was really easy to make friends. Everybody was really internationally minded, you know, and, and we were just all very similar, because I guess, you know, PNG did a good job in recruiting very like-minded people. So yeah, and I still, I made you know some of my best friends basically there.
1: There's a few things that um, you said that I wouldn't normally associate with a a big corporation like P&G. For example, freedom. Mm -hmm. I remember as a vendor for P&G, shooting ads for P&G, freedom was the last thing that I felt. (laughs) Like, I was scrutinized for the shape and density of the fake bubbles on an Old Spice shampoo. (laughs) Like... Almost publicly humiliated in front of the whole production crew for getting the bubble density wrong. So, when you speak about freedom in PNG,
0: what do you mean? So, I guess there's, you know, the freedom within certain constraints, basically, right? I mean, but I guess I had um, maybe the opportunity, the a fortunate opportunity, to work on uh, the last. Sort of commercial innovation on patent in Western Europe, because after that everything got centralized, and then the products were developed in North America and in the U.S., and then sort of um, you know rolled out around the globe. But I created the last like generally you know sort of like, how do you say it? like sort of standalone initiative for Western Europe. So I got to work with R&D. To understand what the product actually does right then I got to work with um, the design agency and we had to create a bottle and the label and everything and it didn't exist right so basically I had the freedom to create it mind you it took me 31 feedback rounds with the design agency so you can probably relate <laughs> to that <laughs> until we got to the final you know end product of the label but it was a creation process right and it didn't exist it wouldn't have existed without me
1: 31 Backgrounds. Backgrounds. So you have a deliverable, you send it off for approval, and they say change the color, change the size, change the te-
0: texture, and this went on for 31 times. So no, I said change the colors, change the like,
1: You change the colors <laughs> 31 times. The so,
0: shape of the ampersand, and you know. I don't even know what ampersand means. It's the end sign. It's basically because it was a color care product. And it was a collection of color and smoothness and color and volume. So there's color, and there's an ampersand and an end, and the second word, right? And obviously, the ampersand can have different typographies, and we probably spent two or three rounds on on just the ampersand. Was it a tolerant environment for this type
1: of perfectionism?
0: Yeah, yeah. Was Was it encouraged? Um, I think I think PNG hires quite like you know detail oriented people for you know brand I mean I think we were all very detail oriented basically because if you think about it you know I mean it, it, I think people don't know right but for example when you print a, um, a shampoo label right creating a, a new label means new colors like a new press like that press alone costs 100,000 euros basically so you want to be pr- pr- you know printing the right thing Right, and, and you know, I had like three point five million—I forgot dollars or euros, probably dollars—because um, it was an American company—to work on the creative materials, etc., etc. That's just literally shooting the advertising, or sh- like creating, you know, the toolkit for in-store materials, and and so forth. But then the countries would spend, like, up to like you know tens of millions on you know advertising, right? So if you're the person creating everything, like, you better make sure it's right because it's going to go out to millions of people and you know and there's going to be millions of customers of your product and if they look at the bottles like this amber scent looks a bit shit, <laughs> and then you know it's it's not good right i mean obviously you think that and the consumer would never do it but it's kind of like what you think right
1: was there ever a complaint about the color
0: of this thing uh, it was the shape of the thing yeah no but we would literally sit together as like a brand team it was me my manager and like you know and we were literally discussing about you know, shapes of fonts or, or, you know, like, not, you know, I guess not specifically like, oh, we want this line to be a bit longer, but it's generally, should it have like a serif, should it not have a serif, you know, whatever, should it be cursive or not cursive, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Another thing that, uh, the reason I'm spending so much time talking about PNG is because one of the biggest benefits of having gone through McKinsey, Porter, and Mm -hmm. Gamble is you learn how to do things. Yeah. You don't necessarily learn what to do and how to prioritize or, or the peripheral aspects of work, but you learn the process. Mm-hmm. And then you get to decide do I want that long process? Is there a mm-hmm. is there a leaner way of doing it? So it's I, I enjoy hearing the details of it. And I think there's a lot of benefit to it because you've taken it uh, you've taken it uh, to the startup world and I wanna see what survived in mm-hmm. the transition. But before going to that I wanna also spend one second about the culture you mentioned that one of the biggest draws to working in P&G was the other experts the other people how today some of your best friends are still people who you've met for P&G given that Procter is such a mature organization with career progression and da 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 and performance reviews wasn't it also a highly political and and competitive environment
0: not in the early stages i would say i think the, i think the first for three to four years are amazing. Like, I think that's where like, you know, you still feel the freedom because you have so much to learn. Everything is new, right? And then, you know, you get to travel, you get to like do stuff, right? And, and oftentimes you are, so Pinji recruits for leadership, same as McKinsey actually, but basically like you're given like, you know, you have to lead your projects basically. So you feel like amazed, amazing, right? But um, I think the po- po- politics come after about four or five years, when then it's about you know sort of the you know the the next big promotion or you know which job and maybe you want to relocate maybe like you know that you you want to have like you have demands on your own career and that's kind of like where like the politics start basically right and that's where you'd be like okay is my own career still in line with what the company offers me and that's kind of like when people typically start to start to leave
1: super interesting because the next question I was about to ask was when becoming a founder, looking back at your time with PNG, was it beneficial? Would you recommend early inspiring entrepreneurs to go through those few years of a, of corporate work before embarking on their own journey? Or, you know, move fast and break things mentality, just start doing what you want to do and figure it out as you go? What's the balance?
0: I think it really depends on the person. So, I mean, there's definitely people that can, you know, straight out of school, start stuff, and, and, and just, you know, be really good at it. But typically, I would assume they have a certain self-awareness that, you know, they're really, really good at certain things, basically, right? And they probably see traction, you know, on, on what they're whatever they're doing, like, you know, from the bedrooms, right? I mean, I wouldn't probably sort of advise anyone to, to graduate school and who doesn't have a plan to then become an entrepreneur, because I don't think that's kind of like a good idea at all. It's all a learning process. Even being an entrepreneur is a learning process, right? So you learn what works, what doesn't work. And you also learn over time, whether it's kind of like, you know, something for you or not, basically, you know.
1: There's this sentence that says plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Yes, exactly.
0: Uh, so
1: I think, I think that uh, rubbing against companies, cultures, yeah. products, yeah. industries, Helps you start planning your next steps. So in that regard alone, yeah. it's worth uh, it's worthwhile doing. Yeah.
0: You also learn about like I guess how business like in in a certain industry works, right? I mean, I understand the process, you know, front to end, from you know working with R and D, creating a product, creating like you know the packaging, creating the advertising, creating like whatever stuff that local markets would need to roll it out in, you know, and like, to bring it on shelf, like like end to end, you know, I know how to launch you know uh, a consumer product basically and and i think as you are looking to launch so that's i think the analogy to entrepreneurship you're always looking to launch something basically right so i think that's kind of like where you can transfer knowledge uh from your corporate job in launching stuff you just don't have the same resources yeah Mm -hmm.
1: that's that's actually a super interesting perspective that entrepreneurship is basically launching stuff and see what happens Uh, this is This is the job. Yep. Think of something, launch it, see if it gets any traction. Yep. As an entrepreneur, you often don't choose what lessons to learn. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> so, you just learn, it's like, oh shit. <laughs> so if,
1: you, if, you've, uh, if you've joined a company like Proctor, you know what you're gonna learn. You're gonna learn brand management, yep. A to Z. But then you embark on your own journey, and then you have to learn tax regulation, and finance, and hiring, and firing, And uh, and bootstrapping Mm -hmm. and all these things. So we'll get to we'll get to all these lessons uh, of entrepreneurship soon. But when you've realized your learning curve has plateaued, Mm
0: -hmm. what did you do? So I think um, I was basically thinking about okay, what should I do next? Basically, right? Um, And I guess the thinking was, do I want? I mean, the immediate thing is like, okay, should I? go to a competitor. Should I, you know, apply to Unilever, L'Oreal or whatever, like a different product category, basically. And I think the other thing I, I guess didn't like about the corporate world is actually I had like a, a time, not when I quit, but like just before that a little bit, I had a very challenging time with um, my boss and it took me a lot of like emotional energy to like improve that relationship for like over a year, basically. And, and that was just kind of like really, really, you know, emotionally draining and I thought that this can actually happen anytime in any corporate because you you because we all rotate, right, our jobs and roads and, you know, you might be put into a great team and you have like the best time for like a year or two, but that can change really easily with like the next rotation. And that's kinda like out of your control. And in a way sort of at the time I was kinda like, well, I want to control my own career and I don't want to put my career into like the hands of other people basically. So that also was kind of like a, you know, a reason why I left.
1: In hindsight, going the entrepreneurial route, did you actually gain control over your life or were you still somewhat dependent on others?
0: I gained control. I'm, in hindsight, I'm not sure whether that was the smartest thing to do, to be honest. <laughs> because you gain control, but it's kind of like, when you have freedom, it's kind of like, okay, what do you do now? You know, <laughs> like all of a sudden you wake up and be like, okay, you know, like I am in charge. I can do whatever I want. But what do I do? Right? And it's really hard. I think most people uh, underestimate how long it takes to build up anything meaningful and also learn about yourself what type of business you are supposed to build, basically, or you're good at building. So there's a lot of learnings, basically, that I had in in the three years after I left.
1: How does one quit pork there without having a plan?
0: You tell your boss I'm quitting.
1: That's it? You've had enough? (laughs)
0: so i think at the time also um i mean i guess that that would be the, the typical process you know of just quitting right you can just literally quit it's like i'm done with this i have an notice period you know that's cool what in my case happened is actually they had a voluntary redundancy program um, because they were sort of looking to restructure beauty um as the beauty sort of part of the looking company to
1: restructure beauty outside of the proctor world that would be a good facebook community <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they did sell, um, they were basically looking to sell all the small brands, basically, that were not under their, I guess, mission of building billion dollar brands, which, you know, is fair enough. And they sold about, I think, 95 brands globally, uh, I think, four years after I left to Koti. So, wow. So, you know, that was that was the beginning of all of that stuff. Well, diverging,
1: but thinking back, now they've started buying brands again. Yeah. So all the direct-to-consumer brands. Mm-hmm. So from consolidation mm-hmm. back yeah.
0: into... But that's like a whole cycle, basically, right? I mean, at the time, you know, I mean, you know, like use of strategies, et cetera. Also the consumer changes, right? I mean, we're living in such a fast paced environment now that like sometimes, you know, when you've built a brand that is a bit dragging along, it's, it's easier almost to sell that brand and buy a new one that's kind of like perceived to be cooler to kind of like tap into the same market than trying to revive the old brand.
1: Quickly bought the without a plan You've given your notice. Yeah. Voluntary redundancy. Fine. Day one of unemployment. Where are you? How are you feeling? What do you do?
0: I mean, that was like a tough period in my life, actually. Like unexpectedly, but because I just I didn't know. The the point where things started to fall apart was. a lot of things. Almost like you know, if you look at a table, it has like typically not not this one that we're sitting in front, but typically it has like four legs, right? And it's kind of like you start to break things away, right? And then it's like the whole thing just like collapses, right? Because you know, if you don't have a job anymore, I moved into a city I didn't know, I didn't know anyone there. Um, it was just basically, I guess, logistically convenient. And you know, you don't have friends in in town, and you don't have a, a new sort of purpose, right? So you literally have nothing. And on top of that, actually, my boyfriend at the time, like, we broke up basically, and like, you basically just don't have a relationship as well anymore. So you literally have nothing, and you basically then I was sitting, you know, on, on my couch in, in Zurich, and I was like, you know what? I think that the and that was really dep- depressing in a way because you could literally sit on the couch, and literally do nothing for like weeks, and nobody would care. You know, like you you kind of like move around in in, in the city, and you be like what's the point of all this basically right and and i guess because i didn't chose to be in zürich professionally it was just basically logistically convenient and um and i guess like i didn't have any steady income but i guess i had because i, I basically sort of took my un- unemployment benefits and that was like the whole reason why i moved back right cuz i was like i need a bit of a transition time and you know if anybody listens to this uh you know if you ever want to have like you know 18 months time out like well paid go to switzerland work for two years and then claim unemployment benefits <laughs> it's great and and so i did that basically right um yeah
1: jokes aside it's a strategic advantage if you can buy yourself the time to heal from your previous employment yeah. and get ready for the next one yeah. if you don't have an income immediately anxiety takes over
0: yeah yeah no exactly it was very you know like I, I didn't have any financial worries basically but i i had i was i think the anxiety was more about what is the purpose basically like what, what you know if i it's literally blind canvas like you could do anything like what are you doing basically and and that's it's actually really hard to to decide you know
1: so it was 17 18 months between quitting proctor and then setting up your own business
0: No, so I was kind of working self-employed in in Zurich as an image consultant, but that just never took off basically as a, as like you know a a business because it was too infrequent the um the sales and and the service, and then I also had a blog at the time, and the blog sort of picked up some momentum, but it was just I mean I I understood that I had to like completely scale that to like a you know level beyond what I could do. To make any money from it, basically, right? I mean, the blog got some recognition and all that. Um, what's, what's some recognition? So um, it was uh, it was actually at the time it was a blog around fashion and sustainability, and um, it was about like sort of, you know, how we can be more mindful with um, the use of our clothing versus uh, buying like new clothes all the time, and we can be a bit more creative about you know how to combine things basically. And um, it got picked up by at the time it was called the AOL Style Council. So they were working with I guess like perceived influential blogs basically and they would syndicate the content onto their content platform so, so I guess you know so that happened right so then my content was like on their platform and then you know sort of it got like more reach and things like that but even if, if you had like you know sort of a couple thousand like you know hits per month that would just like nothing uh, what like a fashion platform needs to have it has to have like you know hundreds of thousands and millions basically to make you know any like money or build into a company and I actually had the blog more as like a creative outlet for my image consulting services. So it was more like a funnel for me, and it was never like a, a business on its own. And then the whole model just didn't really work, right? Because like the funnel wasn't really working that well in that sense. Um, I mean, the funnel on its own could have potentially be something, but um, the service on its own was you know, really hard to sell. It was still perceived, and it's still a thing perceived today as a luxury service. Need you no know, consulting an image consultant and all that yeah, you need to have an
1: image to get some consultancy
0: on that. <laughs> well or you can have zero image and you can you know sort of build an image basically right but I think it's perceived as, as something that only like ultra rich people do um, which is actually not true, but hey, that's, that was like, you know, the struggle of the business basically, right? Yeah, business anymore. <laughs> exactly. But that just basically didn't work. And then, um, and I was at the end of my time in Zurich and I thought, okay, let's move on from here. Cause now I'm not getting any unemployment benefits anymore. And you know, now I have to like start paying for everything myself. So I'm not going to do that. And yeah, and that was it in 2000, um, when was it like end of 2013? When I thought, okay, do I move to Berlin or do I move to London? And then I chose London um, because of the reason we mentioned before. And yeah, it was just more international.
1: So you're here, London, day one, same as in Zurich. Right? Yes. You're on a sofa. It's a new town. <laughs> yes, You I still know. haven't figured out the whole income situation, no. but you're off the uh, unemployment benefits. London is hell of a pricey town to mm-hmm. be living in. You bleed money just by existing. Yes. What's next
0: What's next? So I was in my Airbnb in Whitechapel, and I was okay. Well, now I get a better. Make this work, basically. Then you know, now it's like showtime. And then I went to a lot of events. I pretty much spent my first two years in London going to events Monday to Friday every week wow. to meet people, to see what's going on, was to there learn. Any money coming in. Oh yeah. So actually, um, the lucky thing—not the lucky—I say lucky. It's actually not lucky, but. Um, I had a I had a contract actually with uh, Selfridges, uh, a consulting contract. So that was my second company. When I moved to London, I started a company called Captivate China, and um, the purpose of Captivate China was to help retailers with their brands towards inbound Chinese like you know people, whether it was tourists or mainly it was tourists to be honest, or um, local. Um, the Chinese student community is very very strong and has very very high spending power, right? But they don't know about you know brands as as such. So you have to like educate them.
1: Where does the side note completely? But it, it boggles me because where does the student population in China accumulate the wealth that they're spending? I see them on the their tube. parents. Their parents. Yeah. So wh- it's all second generation, second
0: generation wealth.
1: Second generation. So all of those people wearing Louis Vuittons to yeah, school. Yeah. Second generation wealth. Yeah.
0: All of them. None of them work,
1: like probably ever in their life. And their parents, where is that money coming
0: from? Uh, property, uh, factories, manufacturing, um, lots of infrastructure. Yeah.
1: And what's the obsession with luxury goods in, in young Chinese population?
0: I think it's like a certain materialism that people have, right? I mean, I think, you know, in China, you st- it still exists um, that you look up to the West, right? I mean, because you were always, you felt that you were inferior, basically, right? And then that, you know, no, like, basically, you were perceived as a poor country. Uh, and then obviously your country rises and you get all of this wealth, right? And, and obviously, I mean, China on paper is still a communist country. I mean, not in reality, but like, you know, since like decades, but on paper, it's still a communist country. So it's kind of like people grow up in like poverty and actually owning stuff gives them a sense of security. So a lot of Chinese people just want to like own stuff. And that's why like a lot of Chinese people want to own property and like all of that stuff, basically. Right. Because it gives them that sense of security.
1: Got it. Makes sense. So for your first two years in London, you were giving consulting services about companies who want to captivate Chinese audiences. Mm-hmm. Living here, attending networking events. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said Whitechapel for those who haven't lived in London. Whitechapel five years ago. That's
0: was pretty dodgy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Probably not the easiest uh, neighborhood for a single female to be living in alone. At that point, were you regretting you've quit poker?
0: No, no, because I was super optimistic, like I was super optimistic, I can, you know, find my way, I can, you know, I mean, I was, I was always very confident in my skills, and the reason why I left p was like, okay, I've gained like the skills, like, you know, a good enough skill set that I can make it on my own. I was fully convinced I, I, I can make it on my own.
1: Yeah. Well, lending self Selfridges as a customer, you know, testifies to your skills hands down, how many people can do that with a company that has zero legacy, zero track record, go into a new town and then one of the biggest retailers uh, uh, as a customer. That's pretty remarkable. And then came Blooming Founders.
0: Mm -hmm. So that came about because I mentioned before I didn't have any friends. And then um, I also didn't meet that many. You know, I met, you know, a few, you know, women that are also entrepreneurial. And and I started a meetup group. So actually I went to a lot of meetups first. And then I found that, you know, there was no meetup really for, you know, I guess female entrepreneurs that were, that, that was not completely stuffy, you know, like women who lunch type of situations. So I started my own meetup group to A, meet more, I guess, you know, women that are also entrepreneurial and then just kind of like, you know, have like a side thing going. Cause I think, I think my blessing and my curse is I'm really good at organizing events. I'm really good at, you know, bringing people together and I really enjoy doing that. So I kind of like naturally did it, right? And then that sort of grew over time. And then after about a year of working with Selfages, I got a bit bored from, from doing that. And again, you know, I hit a bit of a plateau because I couldn't really scale the company because it was basically just me consulting. And, and I sort of developed like a bit of a version of trading my time for money. So I was like, this is not the business I want to build. I want to build a business that's kind of like more scalable, et cetera, et cetera, that I don't have to always like, you know, do the work myself. And um, and yeah, and then at, at the time, when I was ready to let go of, of the, you know, consulting part, the only asset I really had was that meetup group that by the time it grew to like 1,500 people, I think. And we had regular meetups, you know, just in a bar in Soho somewhere and we had you know 30 40 50 people attending so it was kind of like you know like a thing right and and, and it happened you know with a in a very predictable way that I thought that you know there might be something here right obviously I, you know attend and hosting these meetups I would listen to what the women would say and, and there's a lot of things that female entrepreneurs struggle with and keeping in mind I was you know now almost five years ago when nobody was doing stuff for female entrepreneurs right I mean now everything that has exploded. But uh, but that was kind of like, you know, the, I guess the tipping point where I said, okay, if I'm moving on, then this is almost like the only asset I have, but also something that I kind of really resonated with because I was one myself and, and my background was, you know, in designing products for women on Pantene. And Pantene actually as a brand is all about strong women, strong hair. So I, you know, spent almost four years of my life thinking about strong women and strong hair. So it's kind of like, you know, it was easy for me to, to, to sort of Get going because it was very, you know, it leveraged what I, I've done in the past.
1: I don't know if you noticed, know but sustainable fashion mm-hmm. way before it was a topic.
0: I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm just always like pioneering the things and just, you know, but I'm like still doing, finding it. the good fight on my own. I'm like, fucking hell. <laughs> I know.
1: It's a, it's tricky hard, the, the catching the momentum in the right time. Like starting a blog about sustainable fashion three years ago, four years ago, mm-hmm. bam, mm-hmm. it lands your job in mm-hmm. the pocket and gamble of sustainable fashion. Yeah. And uh, you took your interest in products for women mm-hmm. and your experience in, in crafting them and launching them and you've opened an incubator for female entrepreneurs. How did you know a co-working space for female would be what you need to do?
0: I didn't. <laughs> I kind of like... You know, it got got the insights over time, right? And I think as an entrepreneur, like what we tend to do is like we tend to sort of spot the adjacent opportunity from what we're doing today. Like everything I've done is like adjacent, right? Even like you know, if you literally look at the 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 sort of um, magnifying glass, right? I mean from Png like image consulting why did I do image consulting because I saw so many women stuck in middle management not being able to get a promotion because they didn't portray the image of a future leader right that's why I did image consulting then I realized it didn't work and then say okay next opportunity right what like you know and you you learn and you learn and you learn and then you start you know come to Blooming founders and be like look there's no you know sort of platform for female entrepreneurs that are like early stage looking to launch things looking to launch businesses you know, it's really hard for them to get out there, meet like like minded people, get access to like, you know, knowledge, like sort of networks of knowledge that, that um, you know, the men would have basically. So then we started with that, right? And then, in, you know, I guess from the beginning, we were always um, events based and we did a ton of events and built a community from there. So then, you know, we had this community and after about two years of running events and then one year after publishing the book, my book, I thought, okay, you know, I was basically running around London, you know, with my little suitcase of like events, like, you know, stuff and food and drink and all of that stuff. And it was just logistically quite complicated, even for me to like be running around London and hosting all of these events. And I thought, wouldn't it be just like logistically better to have your own space where you can host your events with a lot more easiness where you can create space for other women to host their events and, and things like that. And, I mean, at the time when I had the idea, it was early 2017. I mean, WeWork was booming, right? And then the whole coworking was kind of like, that was like the thing, right? And I thought, you know, look, I have this community, you know, I love property. And, and I guess like I've moved around a lot. I love actually looking at floor plans, very random. But, <laughs> but yeah, you know, so I thought, you know, I can do it, right? It was kind of like adjacent to what I've been doing before. And it just kind of like made sense. And that's how we sort of opened a co-working space.
1: It's funny how a, how a big move like that, yeah. probably taking a loan or using your savings to start, yeah. a, start a, a business, like a physical space, yeah, yeah. running it, marketing it, yeah. all of that, how if you look at it two years before, couldn't have thought about it, couldn't have done it, no. but then when you're on track, when you're leveraging your assets, mm-hmm. it's just another small step towards Yeah, exactly.
0: Where you want to play. Yeah, yeah. Like I had most of the puzzle pieces. I just didn't have the space, basically. (laughs) Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So, you said that uh, the that
1: factory, basically it's like a green launching stuff. <laughs> Walk me through launching Blooming fountains.
0: So, well, so it we started from the meetup group, right? And then from the meetup group, we, um, I tried to sort of professionalize it more. So instead of just having drinks in Soho, I wanted to do more, more content led events and panels and things like that. Because at the time, you know, there were tons of events in the startup World and they were all like all male panels, basically, so called manals. <laughs> but Manals. <Man-les. laughs> that is
1: awesome. Never had a it. <laughs>
0: And I thought, you know, we don't have to, I just, like, you know, I think me and maybe the other, like, five women in the audience were kind of like, why do we have to look at men talking about stuff all the time? So, yeah. Um, and I think there's literally also a hashtag, a hashtag no man or something like that. You can Google it. But... But yeah, so events, and then we started building, um, and then the people who come to the events, they were like, oh, I really love your events. These are great people. Is there a way for us to stay together? I said, yeah, sure. Uh, let me have a thing. Hmm, Facebook groups. Let's just invite everybody to the Facebook group so you can stay in touch, etc. Et and that kind of became, like, I guess, like the, the wrapper for the community and then uh well i just you know did more and more events that you know you know rinse repeat a little bit um and i published a book uh, in 2016 as like the first product um that people can just basically buy and uh in in 2017 then just like basically uh, just shortly after launching the book bank maybe within like five six months i started to work on the co-working space idea because by the time we had you know quite like a big community we had probably almost 2,000 people in the Facebook group at the time. yeah and I thought that this would be like you know a sensible next step for me to build um, because then we can start charging recurrent memberships and that will just kind of like take the business to like the next level in terms of um, revenue and also stability because events are not very stable in terms of income because it kind of like its kind of like goes in spikes and also it's not very scalable. Right. And I thought that at the time, you know, maybe there is an opportunity to kind of build a chain of, you know, sort of co working spaces that are sort of more catered for, for women, etc. Et now I know it doesn't happen, but hey, you know, you learn. So two years onwards was like that was a shit idea <laughs>
1: With events, it's funny, everyone who's ever produced an event goes through a similar life cycle. Mm. Two months before, oh my God, it's going to be amazing. One and a half months before, this is so exciting, I'm yeah. enjoying it so much. Yeah. Can't wait. Three weeks before, oh my God, I'm not selling enough tickets. Mm. Two weeks before, Jesus Christ, we haven't sold nearly enough tickets. This thing is not going to work. One week before, it's like, can't wait for this to be over. <laughs> Two days before, I'm never producing an event <laughs> ever again. <laughs> Day of the event, you don't even remember it, and the day after the event, you're already thinking of the next one because it was absolutely yeah. awesome.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> so, you wanted any physical space, physical space means paying rent. Yeah, uh, paying rent in London, mm-hmm. paying rent in central London or in east London. Mm-hmm. Um, how much money are we talking about to rent uh, Blooming Founders for the first uh, year of its activity?
0: Mm, it was about 24,000 pounds a month. 24,000 pounds a month to rent the space yeah in our first pilot location I didn't do the math correctly I maybe like overlooked a zero or something (laughs) no I just I generally I generally thought I could make it Uh, we actually sold about 80,000 pounds worth of like memberships up front so I thought it was going on. And then, you know, we opened, and then we had, like, you know, more members, and etcetera et And I think you had like, the launch effect. Basically. Like, the launch was great. But then, you know, we ran into issues with the, with the building, and we had to move after six months. And, you know, sort of all of the money I invested in, like, the fit-out and things like that well, was obviously lost. You're saying we. Oh, wait, me. <laughs> oh, so when you say we, you mean... Actually, at the time, I had two employees, actually. So in, in a sense, it was we at the time.
1: So you, you were starting a business, running that business every month meant you were spending, what, 30,000 pounds more?
0: On, with the co-working space, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. 30,000 um, pounds. Were you taking in a salary? No. No. So all the money that came in went to the business?
0: Yeah, and the people. Yeah,
1: so, 30,000 pounds. How much money did you need to make every month in order to keep the business alive?
0: Yeah, it was about the 30,000 so pounds. So to yeah, break yeah. even? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: What was those uh, those issues you mentioned? Like, when did the launch effect dissipate and forced you into taking an
0: action? So, co-working is actually quite seasonal. At least um, with so our community is very early stage startups, basically, right? So we don't have that many. I mean, we do, but. I guess you know they would join. Like if, if there's fundamentally in co-working, there's different um, needs. I mean, either you you are more working flexibly and you need like kind of like you know a, a space for that, or you need an office. It's actually two different, very two different sets of needs, and, and they just happen to kind of coexist within in a, within a co-working space, which a lot of people kind of get confused about. But we didn't have that many people that needed an office office. We had a lot of people who wanted to be part of the community and uh, potentially need a space like ad hoc basically, right? So basically what I started uh, seeing is after um, like three months that the coworking um, or the co-working industry that I was in, not the office rental um, industry is very seasonal. And it was in the year where in 2018, um, there was a very, very long winter and we had like snow in March or something. And it really impacted like footfall, like numbers of tours, et cetera, et cetera right? that was one one thing that when you saw like literally like the decline because i think nobody's coming to see the space nobody's signing up clearly right
1: so you can you can do everything right Mm -hmm. set up do the whole launch sequence and then a late winter with some snow in it and it impacts your revenue for for the next two months yeah exactly were you ready for carrying that type of risk no
0: i mean i didn't i wasn't aware i was just literally was not
1: aware (laughs) so that means basically what two or three months of spending thirty thousand pound Every month, yeah, yeah. keeping the space yeah. alive
0: and open. Yeah, I mean, all of the the profits we've made in the previous years went down the drain basically through that. And on top of that, we also kind of like you know had a more and more difficult relationship with the landlord, like you know, of the space because they were not um, happy with us running all of these events because you know, it's just kind of like we had like loads of events like outside of working hours, et cetera. And yeah, and we just got, got, I guess, in more and more arguments around that as well. And it was just like not a pleasant environment to be in in, in the end. And we just agreed that it would be better to just part ways. But then it meant that, you know, I guess for them, it it meant obviously they lost basically sort of um, the the customer, me, but um, for me, it also meant that I had to find a new space to move or co-working space too, right? I mean, it's not something you would, you know, do like just like that, but it was kind of, you know, it just ended up to be like, I had to move the whole thing within two weeks.
1: Moving a co-working space almost necessarily means giving up a new client base
0: kind of i mean we kept about so we obviously so disappointed some clients because people actually paid for an annual membership right and then we moved after six months so then you know you you kind of like take away the product you sold to people which was obviously not good at all but overall i think grooming founders had such a strong brand equity that we actually had a lot of people who even kind of stayed with us through the next six months of being like in like in our interim space while I was figuring out like you know a solution and and we have some people actually who who stayed with us throughout the whole period and then are still with us actually in 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 our current space but we also had so many people who left us understandably right because you're taking away the product you know and 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 it's just basically you know communicates uncertainty to your customers right so we probably lost about 50% 50% of our customers in, in that move. 50, Five zero.
1: Yeah. How long, how far are you in now? Six months? Uh,
0: yes, yes.
1: So two and a half years into your time in London, six months into your, uh, your blooming founder's venture, yeah. you're burning through 30,000 yeah. pounds per month, still not taking in any salary. You've just lost half of your customer base and mm-hmm. you need to basically reboot the whole business. Mm-hmm. Was that taking at all?
0: I was just kind of like in you know survival mode i actually learned about myself at the time actually i'm very very good at crisis management i actually felt okay during that time i just like was like i need to save the situation and i need to make it work somehow right i mean i had to let go of all of my staff i obviously had to like, cut down costs right um so i had to let go of all of my stuff um i moved into like i managed to find an interim location that was a tenth of the price so instead of V- uh, £20,000 plus VAT, the 24,000, um, it was only £2,000 plus VAT, so that's kind of like how I managed, I literally reduced my cost by 90% um, in that move, and that was how I was able to man- to save the company, because otherwise we would have literally, we had probably one more month of money in the bank.
1: Did you have a an investor coming in and helping no. you? No. So all of this is self-funded yep. still, you and the revenue you can generate? Yeah. How much? How exposed were you financially? Uh, what do you mean exposed? Meaning that if she hits the fan, no yeah. customers are coming in. You are liable for how much money?
0: The company, I mean, uh, would have been. Well, I guess because we left, we left that sort of um, relationship, right? Um, if I would have stayed into that relationship, I probably would have been uh, liable for another hundred fifty thousand, probably. May not less, like maybe a hundred.
1: 100,000 pounds in potential debt
0: yep. Yeah,
1: that's a huge setback even for someone who's making some portrait and gambling money <laughs> yeah. did you worry over it? did you lose sleep? Like, forget about the side that's good at crisis management like mm. there is still 100,000 pounds with your name on it that you're not sure how you're going to pay them
0: yeah, but that's, I guess that's like where you come to like the solution finding stage, right? And I think that's why, like, I really try to work out with with the landlords. Hey, like, is there like a solution where we can part ways? You know, and you get like you know a, a tenant that suits your needs better, and I can you know find a different like destiny for for our community, basically.
1: As a young entrepreneur, did you feel you were taking advantage of?
0: I mean. To be honest it's business right i mean i don't think so i don't think i was taken advantage of i think there were definitely ways of communication that probably didn't sort of you know were, were like the best how they could have been but at the same time i also have to say like i just overestimated you know the amount of sales that we or like you know sort of the sales trajectory and because i didn't have any i guess investor backing i didn't had a much long long runway anyway i mean I guess I also learned about myself, I'm quite tolerant to risk. So to me, like having like a three month, six month runway was not like a big deal basically. Like I always thought I can make it, but sometimes reality just hits, right? And you just don't make it, right?
1: Three to six months of a runway is not much of a runway.
0: So even people- to me it was.
1: (laughs) Even for (laughs) people who are are tolerant for risk, three to six months of a runway is not a whole lot of money. So you thrive in chaos.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of like, I don't know, I just like, I think I just have like a different, you know, perception of risk, I suppose, to, to other people.
1: Because <laughs> the, the, coolest...
0: I knew what I was doing, right? It didn't turn out to be like that, but I, I always had a plan of like what I wanted to do. The results obviously are, you know, it's kind of like what the market gives you.
1: So as a founder, as a, as a, as a solo entrepreneur, having a plan, fine. But when that plan meets the market and meets reality, and the plan doesn't really come to fruition, there has to be some second guessing. And yep. There has to be a point where you say, "You know, let me cash in all of my chips. I'm heading back to the corporate HQ." Because how long can you carry on with with an excellent plan that doesn't yield the matching results?
0: Yeah, that's that's the right question. You know, I think that's that's you know, uh, it's a personal question that every entrepreneur has to answer for themselves basically right like you know how how far are you willing to go in this how strong do you believe in the vision how strong do you believe in the product etc etc so how far were you willing to go are
1: you willing to
0: go so back then uh i was willing to i still believed in the product i still believed in you know i guess if i were to find like a different venue that would you know if we had like more stability with the venue etc like we can make it work However, in the last two years, I think the market has moved on as well, or they, the market have you know evolved and changed. And now I'm not sure whether I mean I've, actually I'm pretty sure I definitely don't think that there is that much of a market for like the flexible sort of uh, workspace, unless you are actually owning the asset, as in like the property. So I think I I don't I'm not a believer in the lease based uh, model anymore. And and we've seen now you know with the valuation of WeWork crashing and lots of brands. Um, I mean lots a few brands in the UK going into administration that it's a very risky model basically and it's either heavily, you know, funded or you have to be really, really good at, you know, the, the whole cash management or you actually, you know, actually raise investment to buy the property itself, which then it becomes a different game. Do you think we
1: live in a society that it's okay in it to say, you know, I'm giving up on this, I'm moving on to the next one? Um is it okay to fail? Is it okay to experiment and then move on?
0: I think, I think it's it's uh, one thing is what what you perceive as the founder and like the person in it, and the other thing is like what the the rest of the world perceives. Basically, um, I think at the end of the day you have to do what's right for you, and not think what other people might think of you. Um, but overall, it is still I think in in UK it is not easy to. I guess, fail, right? I mean, there's still some stigma attached to it, and there's still a lot of thinking that people kind of do to manage that transition in terms of brand for yourself, right? Like, I think it's okay to move on, but then the, the, the new thing that you're moving on to has to be somehow perceived better than what you have been doing before.
1: What's the stigma that's attached with failing in the tech world?
0: I think, I mean, like, nobody likes, I think in the culture of, like, you know, sort of um, Europe, UK or whatever, it's just not, you know, I think it's just not great, basically, right? I mean, I think you will probably um, get a few looks from your friends or family and be like, oh, you know, like, kind of like pity or or whatever, basically, right? I think it's just kind of, you know, not the thing that you probably need in that moment, um, because you're probably like trying to figure out the next step right and everybody's like oh you know don't be t- too tough on yourself or blah 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 and you'd be like you know you saying not don't be too tough on myself doesn't make me be less tough on myself and i think you always kind of like then start maybe comparing like you know what your friends have done like you know your my business school friends or where they like where they are in their lives and careers and etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera um you know you just basically start comparing a little bit which is also not healthy um But I guess it's kind of like, you know, it's just what happens. You can't really avoid it, right? Because you can't avoid the people in your life.
1: You can't avoid the people in your life, and you can't avoid uh, whatever they've done with Mm -hmm. their life, but you also can't avoid failing. Show me one really successful person that went from success to success to success without having experienced failure. exactly. So how is that still not legitimate? How do we still feel apologetic for failing?
0: it's it's a culture thing it's kind of like it's so deeply ingrained in you know um, how society works and, and stuff like you know it's get the, your self-worth that's kind of like linked to other people's perception of you right I mean I think there is there is actually a lot of people who are like okay don't I don't give a fuck about what other people think of me anymore, and in a way, I mean, they are probably reaching some levels of freedom through that, right? It's a very, very hard thing to do, actually, um, because we're all sort of, you know, we're all part of society, right? We're all part of like an ecosystem, and and everybody wants to feel great about themselves, right? I mean, so I think, you know, we haven't really sort of, um, I guess, populated that narrative. That actually failing is a good thing, and as long as you're learning, etc. Cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, people just think like, oh, you should, you know, graduate from business school, join, you know, uh, a company, have your whole career at the company, end up as like president or MD or CEO, right? Like, you know, whatever, and then that's gonna be like your success, basically, and then you retire, right? That's like your success. But it's, I think, I don't think that a lot of people would actually sort of for their for 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 themselves see it as success, because actually the most time, I and mean, that might be very, very boring, basically. And then, you know, so if you're retired, you'd be like, oh, now I can do, like, you know, all of these kind of, kind of different things. But like, you'd be like, well, you could have done that before, basically, right? We talked about society, and
1: mm-hmm. the perception of society here, and how it influences some of our decision-making. But at the end of the day, you don't live with society uh, in, your, in your room, or in your living room, and you're not sitting with society on your sofa, you're sitting all alone, And as a solo entrepreneur, you don't have an HR department to look after you. You don't have anyone you can ask for days off. Mm -hmm. You don't have uh, anyone uh, to organize fun days and bring baby goats to the office, (laughs) uh, or send you on an offsite and make sure that you keep learning. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give solopreneurs uh, when it comes to looking after their own well-being and professional growth?
0: I mean, definitely do spend time on it. Um, I sort of uh, spend most of my Saturdays reading, for example, um, and trying to like carve out, like, you know, time to, to I don't know, do nothing basically. Um, free float a little bit in the world and see what's up. Um, it's not easy. I mean, I haven't done it myself in the first three years of Blooming Founders. I think only, yeah, I guess last year or something, or something during like 2018, yeah, after three years. I actually had like a weekend um to myself say again after three years
1: you've had the weekend to yourself
0: mm-hmm.
1: is that a price you knew you were gonna pay when becoming an entrepreneur
0: it was a price i was happy to pay i've always been quite workaholic basically and uh, but i, I love I, I like my work basically right
1: i had employees that when i asked them to send an email on a friday afternoon or on a sunday morning if i was there, if i was in uh, london They resented me for uh, disrupting their work-life balance. And you're saying you haven't had a weekend to yourself for
0: (laughs) three years. There's different people. huh? I mean, you know, not everybody is meant to be an entrepreneur or even would ever go on that journey. I mean, I guess if you look at that, I didn't have a weekend to myself in three years. I wasn't too worried about three to six months runway. I mean, it is what it is, right? You try to make the best out of it. Do I regret anything? Not really, because I wouldn't have made these learnings. And I think every, and I think that's kind of, I guess, part of my fundamental being. It's like I just enjoy learning. And I think, you know, it's it's kind of like whether it's good or bad. I mean, I'm still here. I think I still do better than. I mean, honestly, if you look at the globe, I do better than ninety nine percent of all people alive. So there's not much you can complain about.
1: What did you have to give up to become who you are today?
0: Well, I gave up a lot of money, <laughs> for sure. I gave up stability in, in general because, uh, you know, all of this journey is very, very uncertain. Um, I gave up my weekends for about three years. Um, I also gave up the probably opportunity to meet someone like a partner or anything because it's very, very hard to combine early stage like startups with a relationship. And yeah i think uh that's probably you know that's probably it
1: how did your priorities change from five years ago when you embarked on that journey till today
0: i think so the relationship thing is something i'm thinking about i'm like okay i'm not gonna get any any younger here so maybe that is something that i should uh, look into my time playing around etc like you know utilizing the complete freedom I, i had and i've I think I made the most out of it. I think now, you know, it's almost like when you're young, you kind of like want to do all of these things. I think moving forward, I think I would like to ha- adopt a more <laughs> sensible approach, <laughs> you know, um, that leverages what I've learned so far. Yeah, so maybe like moving forward, I wouldn't be as risk taking as I had been so far, but then you never know, right? I think life goes in phases, right? I mean, when you're sort of bound in the corporate world, or you can think of, like, I want to break out and have freedom. Then you have the freedom, and you, you basically be like, oh, you know, I have freedom. Like, I'll make the best of my freedom. And then you do that, and you like, actually, that also wasn't, you know, it was good on, on some levels, but it wasn't good on other levels because I had to, you know, give up a lot of things that would maybe have put me into a different position in life otherwise. But that's okay. And now you're like, okay, so now you want to be, like, I want to have more stability, basically, right? And then it's kind of like, what is the type of stability that you're like looking at? And I actually have to say, uh, and it's funny actually talking to you just now, I think there is something to be said about an employed um, environment where you have a lot of freedom. And I think people underestimate that because there's been so much hustle porn and you know entrepreneurship that has been made really sexy and everybody wants to become a business owner. And it is really not you know that great, basically, and you have to be really sort of cut out for it, basically, or like really wanted, you know, and really want to go through that experience. And I think what a lot of people underestimate is that I think the position of being, you know, an employee with a decent salary with a lot of freedom is probably professionally the best position you can be in, like long term. I think that a lot of people actually underestimate that because they want they, they either see like both of the extremes, but they don't see that part in the middle. One last
1: final thing, Lou. Um, what would be the best way for people to get in touch with you in what's your current endeavor or thing you'd like to promote?
0: So uh, my best uh, way to get in touch with me is just my email, um, just lu, lu, at bloomingfounders.com. And I will land in my inbox. And what I want to promote, well, everything Blooming Founders. So just go on bloomingfounders.com, check out what we're doing, sign up to our newsletter. Um, I'm also publishing a, a video series where I interview other founders and investors. So if you're interested about you know, anything, so my series is more helping entrepreneurs make better decisions along their journey because there's so many different <laughs> routes to go down, then uh, make sure you sign up to the newsletter and then you can uh, keep an, an eye on that.
1: Thank you for endowing some of your experiences and knowledge on us. Uh, utterly, utterly mind-blowing thinking of the journey you've uh, gone and how five years can pass by so quickly. So
0: quickly. No. <laughs> Thank you
1: so, so much for Thank you so show. much,
0: Tao. It was a pleasure.